you're listening to I'm doing a very interesting thing to open it up we are listening to the first of Bach's sonatas for solo violin this is the second movement featuring a fugue and I really wanted you to hear the differences between different versions so I played them all at once I thought what what would that sound like the one that's coming into focus right now is Chris Thiele who is playing on mandolin and of course, Bach did not write this sonata for the mandolin, but he wrote it for the violin. But it just so happens there's an arrangement of it, BWV 1001 for the lute. And Chris Thiele has recorded the first set, the first CD, if you will, of the sonatas and partitas on his instrument, the mandolin. Now we're listening to Amandine Beyer. She is a uh, Baroque violinist, uh, a favorite of mine. And you can hear her approach to things. And next we're going to hear an extended uh, clip from uh, Gidden Kramer. Uh, Mr. Kramer, uh, this is his second recording of the Bach Sonatas and Partitas, the first one appearing, I believe, on Phillips, maybe? Uh, this was on the ECMU series label, uh, almost around the same time that, an, that another violinist also released this uh, set uh, by the name of John Holloway. You've probably heard me uh, reference him before on our website. But this is Man, uh, not Manfredo Kramer, that would be a Baroque violinist. This is Gideon Kramer, who is a mainstream violinist, not a Baroque violinist. And I think... One of the things I really like about his performance, and the reason why I wanted to give you more of a taste of it here, is just his approach, his style. Lots of multiple stopping going on there. He's really kind of digging into the instrument uh, in a way that I might characterize as a very masculine way. We're now listening to Rachel Podger. Now, Rachel Podger is a Baroque violinist. And I think what you could probably pick up here is that she's not quite as... She doesn't have quite that masculine sound, which I would equate with uh, Kramer's version. A little more space. A little more calm, perhaps. And now we're listening to Victoria Molova. Victoria Molova started out as a traditional non-Baroque violinist, and she did a recording of a few of these pieces, but this is her on a violin that's not quite a Baroque violin, but it's she's using a Baroque bow and she's using uh, gut strings. And then I thought I'd just let you end uh, the fugue back with Chris Thiele, back on the mandolin.
podcast. And if you have not checked out the show notes or have explored some of the other 38 episodes of this series, you can go to bieberfan.org, B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N.org, and you can check up on some of other, our other episodes. But the idea, of course, is that we take a work by Bach and dedicate an episode to it. So we just did a kind of interesting thing there. I gave you a kind of a really fast preview of the second movement of this sonata. We've been kind of working up towards looking at the sonatas and partitas for solo violin, which are regarded by many as the, the pinnacle of violin writing in the Baroque era, if not one of the finest collection of uh, pieces written for the solo violin without any accompaniment ever to be written. And if you are a professional violinist, this is this is material that you uh, you bust your chops on, so to speak. You this is this is the some of the top stuff that you're expected to learn. Um, and you may never record it, but you are certainly going to be practicing it and auditioning on it. And it's just part of the violin canon. You must play the Bach sonatas and partitas. So this is the first one. Now Bach wrote three of each, three sonatas, three partitas, and usually the way they're presented is in BWV order, which is sonata, partita, sonata, partita, sonata, partita. The first one is in four movements. It's slow, fast, slow, fast. And I hope you got an idea of, of the great range because just like Vivaldi's Four Seasons, you have this big major work that everybody's recording. You're going to have a huge variation in what's out there in terms of the different performances. And I didn't even identify to you all the ones that you heard at the very beginning. We had uh, Itzhak Perlman in there. We had Paul Odette on the lute. Um, and I think I mentioned all the others. Um, Victoria Malova, Rachel Podger, um, Gideon Kramer, uh, Amandine Beyer, and then, uh, as I mentioned, just Itzhak Perlman's in there as well. And that's a mixture of what I would call modern violin performances like Perlman and Kramer. And then we have the Baroque uh, performers uh, like Podger or uh, Beyer. And then we have some folks that are just kind of out there doing their own thing. We've got uh, a lutenist. We have a, a, somebody playing on mandolin. And uh, if we could go even further, there's, there's even obviously arrangements beyond those. One of the things that I hope you noticed when it started, it sounded really bad. And uh, part of that is because everybody's not playing the same tempo. Second reason is everybody's not starting on the same note. Of course, we've mentioned this probably a few times in the podcast already, but there are different tuning systems at play. Uh, today, in most places, um, I say most places, it'll, of course, there's a little, you can picture my little asterisk or, or a footnote to that. There's a, a pitch standard of 440 uh, hertz for an A. Uh, we call that modern pitch. And in some places, they take it up a notch, 442. Um, but in America, we would we would go on 440. And then there's what's a standard Baroque pitch that people have sort of decided upon, 415. Uh, and then, of course, if you're arranging it for a different instrument, you may be actually playing in a key that's easier to play on your instrument. So therefore, we get this sort of noisy thing going on, which, of course, playing it all at once was kind of a silly idea to begin with. But I wanted you to hear why everybody wasn't on the in the same key. And that's because they're playing on different instruments um, and so on and so forth. So 
let's let's get something out of the way first. What do we gain by going to a Baroque violin versus a modern violin, right? So what really happened? What, what does it matter? We've, we've listened to Bach in this podcast on piano. We've listened to it on harpsichord. So I hope you uh, can appreciate the fact that while I do like a lot of the historically informed approach to performing Bach, I'm not a slave to it. Uh, especially if there's something somebody is doing on another instrument that really just kind of makes sense, that's novel in a really good way, uh, or is pushing boundaries in a certain way. Uh, certainly the piano is a very nice instrument. It's very popular, of course. We hear it not in just classical music, but in jazz. And The piano is just, it, it can do almost anything. And so it lends itself to box music, I think. Of course, we lose something by playing the piano as well because we're losing part of the part of the, the essence of what makes Bach's music Bach or made it Baroque, right? Um, there is something about a harpsichord that uh, had to influence the way he wrote or the way he would sit down when it was performed. Of course, we don't have the luxury of going back in time and hearing Mr. Bach play. But the instruments that he used, the pitches that he used, the, uh, the pitch uh, standards that he used, the tuning systems that he used, which is something we talked about in the last episode, all of those things had an influence on his music, whether we can perceive it openly now or not. He simply didn't have a Steinway grand piano at his disposal when he was living. And that's not to say that it's wrong to play, but I think there is something to be gained by us to compare. And that's why I'm certainly open to exploring recordings that come from different kind of philosophies or different uh, sound worlds. The Baroque violin, there's actually a few uh, YouTube videos, and maybe I'll put some in the show notes that I think are worth watching. What differentiates a Baroque violin from a modern? And it's more than just the instrument. It's also the playing practice that goes with it. And part of that uh, is associated with the acoustic that's used. So I want to play for you uh, a recording that I've, uh, and I've written about this, so I can't take my, my words back. But this is a recording when it came out I had real issues with because I really questioned uh, a lot about it. It was different. It was... Um, uh, it was just not my favorite at the time. But I, of course, have lived with it, and I continue to listen to it. Uh, it wasn't so bad, you know, that I remove it off my computer. Uh, but this was the recording by Monica Huggett. And Monica Huggett is a British um, uh, Baroque violinist. She's um, She's been a teacher. She's been a major performer and recording artist. And this was... Uh, a solo recording on the Virgin Veritas label. And I'm going to play for you a little bit of the opening. And what is so at first striking about this recording is that it sounds as if you are in a very small room, picture a bedroom, if you will. And you're sitting down and you're with her and she's playing for you in a, in a very kind of informal way. And it was shocking when I heard it because most performances aren't like this. 
Since this recording was made, there's been another performance, which I don't own, so I can't include it on here, but it's by Gunnar Letzbor. And he his, uh, very strange to me, but he decided to make a recording where he was giving you the sense of what it sounded like to be the player playing the music, which means you totally start messing with the acoustic with with where you put microphones where you're trying to capture reverb of the room instead they put the microphone right on the instrument and so you're hearing it almost as if he was the one playing it i know a little different and I, at first i thought that's awful you're hearing every little nook and thing i mean every little detail that you probably wouldn't hear even if you were sitting 20 feet away is, is picked up by the microphone and at first i found it to be a very unsettling recording but i've gone back actually several times and listened to the clips that I, was available to me and i also dabbled with apple music for a while which meant i could listen to anything in the catalog and i, I really tried to get into it a little more and had a better appreciation for what he was trying to do so uh, this is not let's bore but this is uh monica huggett playing the opening uh, slow movement and adagio by Johann Sebastian Bach, the first sonata for solo violin. What'd you think? So, in that just that little bit, there is so much to talk about in terms of the the, the decisions that a violinist is making with with that little bit of performance. So it's it's kind of a very um, it's a neat movement. It it opens up and it's it's uh, it's one of those things by Bach that that will. I think make you think if you are putting all your concentration into it. But the thing that I'm thinking about is, gosh, we're going to listen to something else that, that's that's treated very differently. So Bach is writing seriously. I mean, this is serious music, right? In the episode, I think we did two two episodes ago. We start look. We listened to some other music from around the time of Bach for solo violin and, and got a sense of what else was out there. And so Bach is like really pulling out a lot of the strings here. One of the things you heard Huggett do was to vibrate. She was using a little vibrato on a long note. And we know that violinists before Bach in the Baroque time would use vibration, some of them, they wrote about this, as a type of ornament, something to do when you have a long extended note. Of course, when you're playing double stops, which is two 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 notes simultaneously or a triple stop three notes at the same time it's difficult to vibrate on the violin with all three you might vibrate on one but you might not vibrate at all and then wait for another note and so you you get a very um get people making decisions how should this be done and then bach is providing outside of just vibrato how do you play this the multiple notes because on the bow that Monica Huggett's using, she can sound two notes at once, but here Bach is, is writes in three. And so is the expectation to play all three notes at once or to, 
to roll it. And when you roll it, what should the emphasis be on? Should it be on the low note? Should it be on the high note? There, there's a lot of little nuances involved. So now let's listen to a modern violinist. A modern violinist is playing on an instrument that is projects a little more. Likely they are to play in a larger performance space. The strings will be made out of metal, not out of gut. The, the bridge will be higher. The, uh, the angle of the fingerboard will be different. And they likely trained in a, a style of playing that somewhat was, is departed from when we go back and look at uh, treatises and descriptions of playing in the Baroque times that kind of an evolved performance practice. And probably there's no, no one better uh, who has recorded in recent years who happens to be still alive than, than Itzhak Perlman. Itzhak Perlman has played Bach probably his whole life. He knows these pieces inside and out. It's polished. It's beautiful. But it's on a, a modern violin from a very modern perspective. Let's give the listen now to Itzhak Perlman opening BWV 1001. So Perlman's taking a, a very different approach there, right? The vibrato is strong throughout. It has a much, much more intense, um, uh, just an intensity to it. And he's definitely playing those those multiple stop notes differently. He's, for at least what we heard in that clip, he's trying to sustain them as much as possible together. And so it's a different approach. And... Uh, personally, between the two, I probably would go with, with Huggett in that. There are modern performances uh, that I like, especially in fast movements, um, where these things are just performed so much and so much over and over, and the personality of the player kind of be, becomes embedded in it. That, that's one way to explain it. I'm not sure that's the case every time. I'm making a huge generalization. But in, if I were to compare right now between Baroque and modern, I would go with Baroque, but of course we've only listened to two examples. I want you to hear this um, from one other perspective. Uh, and this is uh, another Baroque violinist, Helen Schmidt. She uh, records on the Alpha label, and she is also a Baroque violinist. This is recorded in... 2000, or released at least in 2005.
really thought that was was beautifully done. I really like that approach. And if I now are going to choose between Huggett, Perlman, or Schmidt, I would go with Schmidt. I think there is a certain uh, humanness, if you will. It's, I know it's probably not a word, but there is there's that. It just feels um, like I think it, it, just a great way to present it, right? Um, it's like when you hang a painting in your house or a picture or something and, you know, there's some walls that just doesn't work right and the others it just it just glows all of a sudden. It's got the right lighting. It's got the right, uh, it just feels right. And that's, that's how I describe this performance. And I think of this, this particular movement as like waking up in the morning uh, on like a hill or something and as as the movement progresses you're you're climbing the hill and you're making a decision about something that's one of the things I think about the reason that I chose the Christili, uh release I really am ignorant to what Christili did before the the um, goat rodeo sessions came out uh, that was a collaboration with Yo-Yo Ma he's the lead on that um, in terms of name recognition, I think, in the classical world. But Chris Thiele is this, I've come to learn, is, is an amazing musician. His instruments, the mandolin, I've had the opportunity to, to since see him live uh, and have just been blown away with, with him as a musician. And I was so pleased to see that he uh, set about to record uh, Bach. Uh, he, he's most mostly known for more of a bluegrass style. Um, and here he is performing, you know, Bach. This came out in two, 2013, and I'm anxiously awaiting volume two. And so this is the opening with Chris Thiele on the mandolin. And I would consider here, even though we're not listening to a violinist, how does the music work for you? And how do our questions about multi-stopping notes and uh, what we do with long notes, how does he approach those issues? Very, the style is different, obviously. The instrument's different, but I think it really, really works. And it doesn't surprise me that there's there's a version that Lutness has been picking up. Um, being able to, to really strike multiple notes at once on the instrument, and then using an, an instrument that's been intimately uh, recorded. Uh, we're not, you know, playing in a huge, we're not taking this little instrument and trying to play it in a big concert hall and put the microphone in the back of the, of the auditorium. It's kind of an intimate captured instrument, uh, intimately captured instrument, much like the Monica Huggett violin version. You really feel that you are in the room with the person performing and it's the instruments picked up sensitively enough that when 
multiple notes are, are, are plucked in this case instead of bowed, that they, they ring through and um, it just works. And so I am a huge fan of his result um, recording the first Sonata for solo violin. We're not going to go back to Chris right now because I really do want to focus on violinists and the, what the violin offers here. But I did want to highlight a little bit of that because I certainly endorse the recording. I've, I've reviewed it uh, a number of years ago, and uh, I think there's there's a lot of pleasure to be found within listening to Bach's Sonatas and Partitas on the mandolin. So next we're listening to Rachel Podger perform the third movement, which is marked at Seliciano. Uh, Bach uses uh, kind of Italian language in this. Uh, he, he calls it a sonata, I guess, but we have fuga written for the fugue, and we have Seliciano, and the, the last movement is a presto. And we shouldn't be surprised when, when composers are using Italian terms. They use them all the time. But a Seliciano is, is a basically a slow dance. And Podger, uh, again, is a Baroque violinist. Nice performance. But we're going to follow it up after listening to that to one I prefer just a little bit more in terms of the interpretation. So that second uh, clip came from Amandine Bayer, and uh, both really took um, care in how to present the, the strong notes, the, the, the notes that appear on strong beats. But for me, um, Bayer just sounds a little more organic, a little more human again to the approach, where Podger sounds slightly more academic. It was like I was really focusing on what to emphasize. Both are really great recordings, and I'm I'm glad I own both, so I'm not really telling you to not buy one and buy the other. Uh, but in that case, I, I like the one that came out a little later. Um, Rachel Podger's recordings came out on the Channel Classics, and I think they've been reissued a number of times. And uh, Amandine Beyer uh, has recorded hers more recently, in 2011, and uh, it's got a very interesting interesting cover it's it's a combination of of her herself and, and some some painterly effects on the cover um and again i just thought that was kind of a nice organic approach in the last movement of this sonata we we of course turn up the speed again and it's marked uh as i mentioned before uh with a fast tempo um bach is Pretty much by using a presto here and starting with, uh, what does he mark? The adagio. So it's slow, fast, slow, fast. And we've seen this before. And he will uh, obviously use this uh, same sort of slow, fast, slow, fast uh, uh, design in the sonatas. Again, using the word sonata for violin and keyboard that we've, uh, we've gone through that collection. And so it's not a surprise, but what kind of thing is Bach going to give us? Because the second movement, of course, is is sort of thick, right? It's a it's, he writes a fugue for the violin, a multi-voiced fugue, 
which again is Bach being Bach. That's what he uh, was born to do is to write fugues. Um, and so in the last one, it's sort of more of a free form. And we have this kind of kind of cascading little shape. You could almost take a pen or a pencil as you listen to it, and you're be you'd be drawing a wave as you listen to it. It has this wonderful shape to it. And of course, it's it's a glorious piece of music. I'm not gonna analyze it for you and, and get too deep into it but it's it's again in the minor mode that we open up the sonata with of course we've just heard in this siliciano we've heard sort of a, a major moded uh, kind of a rest and then you have this whoa you have this kind of waves coming at you and so i'd like you to compare just two very different approaches. First, we're going to listen to Monica Huggett on the Baroque violin, and then we'll listen to Gidden Kramer on the modern violin. Now, Kramer, uh, I don't actually have his original recording, which I believe, again, was on the Phillips label. Uh, I believe it was made in the late 70s or very early 80s. Um, and I think he has, has absorbed, if you will, a little bit of the historical uh, performance practice of this approach to his uh, his more recent recording of Bach. Um, and I say it more because I don't notice the heavy vibrato that we get with Perlman, but there is sort of a, a rawness to the sound that probably most Baroque violinists would not project. So I'm not by any means saying that he's taken a Baroque style to anything. Um, but there are definitely some parts as I listen to the, the whole collection um, that he's put out that I think, oh, I, I wonder if he did that because. And of course, you know, he and I are not on uh, first name basis. We don't write each other, or talk to each other on the phone. So it's not like I'm going to go out and find out from him how he was influenced. Uh, but it, it has popped up in my mind a few times. Uh, so we're going to compare the, the two. And again, I want you to think about the shape, the kind of the, the idea of a wave of things going up and down and how Bach just, um, we, we don't have to understand it, although I'm not, I'm not telling you not to pull out a score, take a look at it, analyze the harmonies and, and how fast he changes harmonies. That's a big thing in Bach. How fast are the harmonies changing? Just listen to the music. It washes over you and it is hard. I, I would be hard pressed to play this for anybody and not have them at least raise an eyebrow and go, hmm, it's not bad. You might not fall in love with it. I'll give you that. But I'm sure most, most people, if polled, if we could do that, like a worldwide poll, or just five billion people, you know, could you play this? And what reaction would you get? Uh, I think it's it's one of those examples of why Bach's sonatas and partitas for solo violin are so popular and have become part of the canon. Is just really well done. <laughs> Thank you. 
I wasn't lying, was I? Very different approaches. Um, I think Kramer approaches it as a really big virtuoso piece, and he he literally takes a Vivace approach. Right, it's just comes out of the gate uh, running. And I think when you play it at that speed and you you play with that style of it's going to be kind of bold you would draw the shapes again if i asked you to, to take a piece of paper out and kind of model the the ups and the downs if you will like if you think picture a wave what, what's this wave going to look like the wave becomes sort of a smoother wave because the things are the the speed at which they're coming at you are sort of in a in a big picture way just because the notes are coming by so fast if we compare it to Monica Huggett's approach, uh, she is definitely playing it slower, but you'll get sort of almost like a magnified view of waves. Like you'll see, you'll see mini waves within the big waves. You, you, I think you would hear that both performers had the big things in common, but it's with Huggett's approach that you're, it's almost like you're putting on your reading glasses and you're pulling the score closer to your face and you're slowing down to see the, the nuances. And that is, is a great way to think about their two performances um, of this work, is that one is kind of bold and in your face and um, takes Bach on at one level, and another is more of a let's get our nose down as close as we can to the paper and really appreciate what's going on. I think Huggett's reading is probably the more unusual one, if we were to maybe listen to a hundred of these, that um, Kramer's approach is is going to be more uh, mainstream, but nevertheless, I think there's value in both. And even though when I listen to Huggett's recording the first time, I'm like, whoa, what's going on? Is this the way we really should be hearing Bach? Um, I really, uh, it's one of those examples where you. You listen to something and you open the booklet and you read what the performer is saying and you, you're trying to reconcile what you hear with what you're reading. And um, I, I really appreciate what she said at the time, and I don't have the booklet in front of me to tell you exactly what it was, but it was it was basically taking kind of a fresh approach to things. And it was... Um, I, I appreciated it. I appreciated the approach immensely but when i heard it i was like oh, this doesn't this doesn't quite sound right but now that i've lived with it for so long and i've listened to it again it's it's as if um i'll first say it's not an approach that she always takes with with playing bach for instance they she performed uh, more recently the bach violin concertos with her ensemble sonnery and uh, while she does some one one on a part stuff which i thought worked well it's the approach wasn't to necessarily slow Bach down and get to the micro level of things uh, in so doing like we hear it here. Uh, and so it's not the same approach she's always been using, I think. 
but she gave this as a special case. And I, over time, I've kind of appreciated it because it really, especially with the score in hand, um, it's, it's looking at a lot of detail in the work that otherwise might not be there um, as we hear it. And it's sort of the performer's take on things rather than um, the, the analyst or the music theorist who is saying, well, of course, Bach is, here's a strong note, and you see the repetition of, of strong beats, and it has sort of this wavy-like shape to it and of course we get big waves and then we get small waves and big waves and small waves and we can talk about the way Bach put the phrase together that way and how it's kind of interesting and maybe that shape that we are think we're hearing is the rationality evidence for why Bach has done what he's done and in Huggett's approach we almost sort of miss that because she's She's zooming in, if you will. She's getting her nose to the page. And she's saying, hey, yeah, everybody everybody knows those big kind of phrases that are there. But what about if we if we look at some of the micro phrases? And she also plays with the tempo a little bit, right? Da, 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 da. It almost speeds up a little bit. I, I found it uh, over time to be kind of refreshing. At the first, I'm like, oh, I'm not sure I would have recorded this, but... Um, it, it has grown on me over time. So I did want to include it here because I, I'm assuming that it's still available. Um, and it might be available as a reissue now. So that wraps up this episode. I, I, there are so many ways we could approach these works. And I've, I've chosen to kind of make a bigger statement in this first uh episode about the sonatas and partitas for solo violin by Bach and that is there's a ton of great stuff out of there number one and you're probably going to hear from some of the same people uh, in some of the other episodes because I want to give you kind of a wide gamut of what's out there and I wanted to make some comparisons as we as we listen we're going to have we could make the same comparisons about every piece the double stopping the tempos the the space between notes, the the acoustic it's recorded in, the um, you know the modern versus baroque approach, or what is what do we gain or lose when we go to another instrument? Uh, I really think this music is so good that you could probably pick up any performer that you have learned to trust, and you'll probably find something very valuable in the result. And so, I have quite a few recordings of the Bach Sonatas and Partitas, and I'm probably not done, right? Uh, there are new recordings. I already mentioned you know, Gunnar Letzbor, who records with a very different idea about how to capture that music. Um, this is among, I think, Bach's highest quality music, especially if we're talking about instrumental music or chamber music. Uh, I'm not going to try to say that you know the mass in B minor versus the first sonata for solo violin, which is better. That, that's kind of a stupid uh, question to ask. They're both masterworks, but if we're just talking about solo music or chamber music, this stuff is at the top. And so I don't think you could go wrong with one performance over the other. Hopefully some of the performances spoke for themselves and you heard some things you liked or you heard things you don't like, and now you know uh, how those compare. So with that, I want to thank you for listening to this episode, episode 39 uh, of BachCast. 
And once again, I'm your host, John Hendren. <laughs>